Magnus Podcast, episode 22, Is Theology a Science? Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. With your help, we are dedicated to liberating the liberal arts. So far, so good. Off to a great start in our pursuit to completely disrupt a broken higher education system by providing something of actual value that's actually free. You can learn more, I mean way more, at magnusinstitute.org. Join the fellowship today. In fact, we've launched our first round of courses uh, slated for this fall. They are completely full, but join the fellowship and uh, sign up. We'll get you uh, notified as soon as we announce the next round of courses. Much more coming soon at magnusinstitute.org. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, if that's your thing, at Magnus Podcast. Give us your feedback. Tell us what you think. And spread the word. It really does go a long way, and we are grateful for your support. More at magnusinstitute.org. Okay, so today we're going to continue this series uh, that we're now calling The Father Owen Carroll Project. It's good stuff, and you've really uh, liked it so far, it seems. So thank you for your encouraging feedback. In today's episode, Brian Long, the great Brian Long, continues his conversation with Father Owen Carroll. Is theology a science? So let's get into it. Before we get into certain aspects of the, um, the second question, um, the uh, where I want to pay particular attention to the phrase uh, that the sacred doctrine is the science of God and the blessed. Uh, I just want to make some preliminary comments that uh, I've already made before, but just to put more of a context uh, for everything that uh, we saw in the prologue, that uh, Aquinas' concern is with the doctor of Catholic truth, and that he's initiating people into that which belongs to the Christian religion. Uh, certainly that would uh, be uh, more convenient uh, to the um, education of uh, beginners <clears throat> so that what we have is Aquinas already within the context of uh, his relation to the Dominican novices that he was aiming the Summa at and then of course we have Aquinas himself as the Magister Regens, and um, in the context of um, his uh, trips back and forth from Italy into France and back and forth, the <coughs> that uh, embodiment of his uh, life as a Magister is uh, so very much part of the Church's life. So that first overarching, all-comprehensive context is the uh, the life of the Church, 
uh, with all of its structure of pope and bishops and priests and other ministers of those days. And uh, then the within all of that, the teaching is um, Aquinas' sharing in the... Um, the bishop's teaching office. Um, but the, uh, what we have to consider very, very importantly is that uh, the sacred doctrine that he, as a sacred a doctor of Catholic truth, intends to hand on to others is really the, the science of God and the blessed. So when we consider the blessed... We have to think of all the um, all the angels um, and all the saints that would be in beatitude. <clears throat> now I don't know if um, Aquinas here would extend the scientia beatorum to all the saints of the church in the uh, New Testament usage that uh, is baptized for all saints. But then just taking it on the level of uh, the all people who are, in, who are blessed with God, <clears throat> all the angels. Now, uh, that is an enormous number of persons. Mm -hmm. And I recall a lecture that Peter Brown gave at the university here. <clears throat> and he was talking about some aspects of the Middle Ages. And he said that uh, someone had uh, figured out mathematically that the proportion of um, angels to humans for Neoplatonics and up into Christian times was 99.999% angels to a single human. <clears throat> so there'd be a, a much greater number of angels <laughs> than there would be humans. Now they'd uh, during that period, they'd have no idea that the world population would get to be something like 6 billion people. Yeah. So 6 billion times 99.9 is an awful lot of angels yes. in any case. <clears throat> so that, um, and the, the angels' intellects are um, actuated by the divine essence itself. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so we have to understand then that sacred doctrine is an intensely personal knowledge that is uh, it's in some ways it's communitarian but I think I prefer to say it's really societal community sounds warmer doesn't it <laughs> uh, society sounds a bit uh, cool, but persons are organized for reasonable ends of their common life, is what a society is. So this, is this is Aristotle's conclusion at the end of the ethics. 
I'd have to look at that again. Okay. The, well, I'm thinking of the last three chapters of the ethics, the eight and nine, the treatise on friendship, and then uh, ten on contemplation. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah. That friends need something to be friends about. So yes. the highest friends, the perfect friends, are the friends of the highest things. Well, I, I think I've mentioned before I have difficulties <laughs> with uh, the Nicomachean ethics. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that... Um, there is the magnanimous man, mm-hmm. and he has, though it will add things to his life, his flourishing life, um, he doesn't need friends. Though they share everything in common, everything of that sort, it is said he doesn't need friends. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, uh, I think that Aristotle's magnanimous man is a real brute. I don't think it's admirable at all. Yeah, but, but then but that, that would seem to run contrary to eight and nine, the treatise on friendship. Right, that's the other problem. That I think there is such an incoherence between the magnanimous man and the contemplative man, mm-hmm. and uh, I can't see after all these decades how the magnanimous man would get to be a contemplative man. Mm-hmm. There are a good number of incoherencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't hold the incoherencies against Aristotle because he accomplished so much. Um, But um, in any case, if there were that coherency between the magnanimous man and the contemplative man, if they were two different individuals, mm-hmm. there was some sort of coherency. I'd say, well, all the better for the magnanimous man, but pretty tough on the contemplative man, because mm-hmm. uh, I think the magnanimous man would be pulling him down. Mm. But uh, mm-hmm. in any case, it's uh, only a few, a very rare few, who can ever attain to. Uh, given whatever coherence you would want to give to the magnanimous man and the contemplative man, um, it's very, very few people Mm. who would ever attain to that. Mm -hmm. And whether they would attain to it after after their death, I think a huge problematic. Can you see on the Top shelf of a gray book. Sure. It's leaning a little bit. No, the next one. The bigger one. No. uh, Yeah. yeah. This is quite a a study on magnanimity. And um, the uh, written by a man who, uh, Boutier, Mm -hmm. who... uh, Along with, uh, what was the other guy's name? Two Frenchmen, in any case, they did a basic study on the Nicomachean ethics. That is always, uh, has to be referred to. But he shows that uh, the whole notion of magnanimity undergoes a huge change in the early Catholic thinkers. Mm -hmm. So it becomes part of humility. Mm -hmm. 
No, you can't say that Aristotle's <laughs> magnanimous humble is in any way even disposed, however remotely, mm-hmm. towards uh, yeah. humility. But uh, Aquinas is able to work the magnanimous man into a species of humility, <clears throat> which changes the historical mm-hmm. record in any case. I think Aquinas does most admirable work. But in any case, the, the huge limitation. So if we go back to the first question that he says that if we were just going on the basis of what human reason can investigate concerning God, mm-hmm. there would be difficulties because truth concerning God, investigated by reason, it would be known by um, only a few, a few, a few. I think probably Aquinas might have a few more than Aristotle. It's uh, even to concerning those things which human reason can investigate. It is necessary. It was necessary to man to be instructed by a divine revelation. <clears throat> but uh, the truth concerning God. Uh, investigated by human reason, would only, um, men would only come, uh, a few would only come, and over a long period of time, and with an admixture of many errors. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so that uh, taking that and looking at the Nicomachean ethics of Aristotle, uh, it yeah. brings things down considerably. Mm-hmm. The, uh, this... Now, Aristotle was a pagan, yeah. and uh, he wasn't even living in his proper pagan territory. The, um, another thing with the uh, Aristotle is um, there's all this question of uh, what is the nature of intellect for mm-hmm. Aristotle, mm-hmm. The, that famous word in the De Anima, the akoristos. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> And what does it really mean? I think what it means in Aristotle is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he left it that way. Um, but uh, to that extent, uh, it would really indicate then that uh, Aristotle's um, human is not really a person. Mm. And then uh, related to that too is the question of uh, metempsychosis the repetitions of birth and rebirth, and that's anti-personal. But in any case, here, with Aquinas' The Science of God and the Blessed, uh, some words like, uh, well, I think it's societal, communitarian, intensely personal, and joyous. Uh, it's a supreme joy. And uh, yeah, now, what, what of the Republic? Do you think that's true for Plato? Um, everything I've said about Aristotle, mm-hmm. basically, yes. Because there's the question of uh, well, he might have a bit better understanding of um, 
the the mind is mind, mm. um, but uh, that's Im- still embedded within metempsychosis and within the uh, cosmos going through its infinite changes. Mm-hmm. Mm. I've spoken before about the, the sort of bulge that uh, Plato may have put on the, um, the Greek circle of the cosmos. Yes. Um, the, there's more sort of fluidity of uh, understanding with Plato mm-hmm. than with Aristotle who is no slouch. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the <clears throat> science of God and the blessed, beatorum, so the, uh, you know, they're blessed. That is, uh, they're in the, uh, the fullest joy that they can ever be in. <clears throat> That's an aspect that is not really paid a sufficient amount of attention to. And so later, when the question will come up in uh, um, Article um, 4 and some of these others, whether it's wisdom and this aspect of beatitude is right to there in all of Aquinas' understanding. So that sacred doctrine relative to beatitude, excuse me, supreme joy, you see how that's taking in the um, the um, uh, prima secunde mm-hmm. on beatitude, mm-hmm. and then all of the secunda secunde, and then it's also taking in everything about Christ, who is our way to uh, this uh, science uh, of God and the Blessed. And so that aspect of joy and theology is I don't know anyone who's addressed it and yet it's plainly there um. I, I have a question about um, something we, we discussed last time um, let's see if we have our, our note here about the, the yes here here the um, the division of sacerdotrina. Oh, um, yes. Well, that's what I was hoping we'd go back over that. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, faith, theology, scripture, tradition, mm-hmm. sacred science. Mm-hmm. I, I see there. Is this the... Um, this higher science, the uh, superioris yes. scientia? It'll be the, it'll be the practical the higher science and wisdom. You see, it's um, always whether the sacred doctrine is going to be this, this, and this. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so so the, the question, Thomas asked question uh, in six, whether it is wis- it be wisdom. Um, He's talking about this scientia. This, that's the sacred science. The sacred science. That's, what he's that's, calling, which is sacred doctrine. Uh, just as, as faith, theology, scripture, and tradition are sacred doctrine. All of these are sacred but doctrine. A, but in a, in a mode. Well, under a certain aspect. Under a certain aspect. Uh, sacred doctrine 
is as this character. Under another aspect, it has that character. Okay. Okay. But now the um, you see, Christ is our way to beatitude, and so to the uh, this fullness of sacred doctrine, which is being shared uh, by God with the blessed, but um, is uh, is not uh, just God's science, but it's really God himself imparting uh, this truth about himself. Now, the, if we look at... Um, let's say, the Beatus, the Blessed One, the Joyful One in Heaven. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you see, it's the same root as uh, beauty. Mm. So, Beatitude, we could say uh, uh, Beautitude. Mm. Um, of course, we're not allowed to talk that way in English. Yeah. But I'm, I'm convinced we have to develop all kinds of neologisms just to focus on the precise uh, Catholic understanding. <clears throat> but, uh, I have yet to see um, a discussion about the relation between that beatitude and beauty would go together, and that the uh, beatitude really would be considered to be joy. Yeah. The best book I know on beatitude was written by a professor from uh, the Faculty of Theology, uh, Father Gaindo. He went to have a copy someplace. He went to uh, Freeburg <clears throat> to do his doctoral thesis. Now he had his licentiate in philosophy and he had his licentiate in theology. He had taught for a few years and then he went to Freeburg to get his doctorate in theology. Mm -hmm. He was a very capable fellow. And uh, <clears throat> the uh, he, and he wrote his thesis under a father Denma. And it's a name perhaps you might remember. D-E-M-A-N-O-P. I've forgotten his first name. D-E-M-A-N. <clears throat> and he was professor of moral theology. And I wouldn't be surprised if he hadn't uh, taught Father Pinkhams. Mm. Uh, in fact, I'd like, I must ask about that. Um, Father Desmarais didn't write a, an awful lot, but uh, what he did write was very influential. In any case, Father Desmarais was Father Gaindo's um, thesis director. There's a marvelous story. I think. Mm. Father Gaindo Roger uh, Roger <clears throat> was in sort of in despair uh, in Fribourg. He just simply could not bring his all his notes and 
pieces he had written, mm-hmm. couldn't bring them into any sort of unity. And so he went one day to Father Dema and said, I'm going to give up the degree. Uh, <clears throat> and Father Dema said, no, no, you go out and you buy a clothesline with clothespins. And you put that clothesline up in your room and you take a piece of paper, first one comes down, and you clip it somewhere on the clothesline, take up a second piece and clip it somewhere and keep doing that and you'll find you're going to move these over here and that one over there. And so Father Raji did that and uh, he realized that he'd finished the thesis some about four months beforehand. Mm-hmm. But he couldn't see it because of the multiplicity yeah. of papers. Yeah. And Father Dema had this very practical wisdom yeah. to, uh, you know, just all that Father Roger had to do was uh, put in a few transitional sentences and things uh-huh. like that. <laughs> uh, I've always considered Father Dema to be a bit of a marvel. <laughs> <clears throat> but that book of Father Roger's, I don't know of anyone who's ever read it. Huh. And I've read it two or three. Yes, two it's, it's in French. It's in French. A, be- a rather beautiful, simple, straightforward French, uh, and of course the Latin. And uh, the uh, I uh, have a, a little bit of regret um, he was in the Faculty of Theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was a layman, and uh, I had been nominated by the Faculty of Philosophy to be the Professor of Moral Philosophy. Where was this at? Ottawa University. Oh, so it was a pontifical faculty, mm-hmm. and uh, <clears throat> I would have been um, Professor of Moral Theology, which is one of the major courses the main part of the university that controlled the finances uh, only wanted to pay me what they would pay a religious. And uh, I thought, no, I didn't want to start a precedent as a layman. I thought that they should pay what they were paying professors in the Faculty of Arts and other places. And uh, because I saw that there, were, there was another professor, a layman, who was teaching all kinds of side courses, and he'd been there for a few years. He was married and he had children. That uh, he probably would be nominated mm-hmm. um, as a professor, perhaps, of natural philosophy, um, cosmology, as it was called in those days. And uh, I didn't think I should start a precedent particularly for married professors. So I refused the uh, the appointment. And also the doctors had uh, said I should move away from Ottawa because of my health. But what I, I somewhat regret is that Father Rajdi and I would have worked together, even though it was two different faculties. Um, and I could have learned an awful lot from him. But I think his uh, thesis is still one of the very best books of a 
historical Thomistic studies. Mm. And interestingly enough, and uh, there, uh, there was another, in fact, it was a classmate, but he was um, a member of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate in later years. He became a professor in, uh, I think it was philosophy, and um, his thesis is a major work on the nature of judicium judgment in Aquinas. But, well, the the science of God and the, the beautiful ones. <laughs> the, now the... Uh, What the the bishops in union with the Bishop of Rome and the what theologians would be in union with all the bishops is like our baptismal grace, the beginning of beatitude mm. and the enhancement, the development of uh, uh, of beatitude already begun. <clears throat> so one can see then that this intensely personal um, societal form of knowing is um, not just a book. You see, the sacred doctrine cannot be the book. And in some ways I'd say the same thing about scripture. Uh, scripture is to bring us to that personal, societal form of knowing. In a sense, I would take the phrase from Paul, put on the mind of Christ, in a very literal sense. Of course, because the Holy Spirit is acting to conform us from glory to glory uh, to Christ, who is our way. But, uh, you know, I think at uh, some point, as Aquinas is writing, uh, this is the primary one, sacred scripture. And uh, let's say when he's into the, um, these, uh, the treatise on faith uh, uh-huh. as the virtue, and faith is primary. So they're they're constantly always shifting okay. and enfolding yeah. each other. Um, <clears throat> let's say faith in us is sacred doctrina in God. Mm-hmm. Well, then you can say um, sacred doctrina, which is God, is in us. Um, you, you see, these are not compartments or containers yeah. or uh, some sort of reality, intelligible realities that are to be put into the uh, definitions uh, a la Descartes or in cat- categories like Kant and things like that. Okay. 
So you see, we're dealing with, a, at least with Aquinas, we're dealing with a mind that is totally different from all these other people. Mm. Now, um, back to, and again, we're going to be talking about the scientia. Now, scientia means just generally knowledge. It is, you put it, sort of epistemic knowledge. It's not just causal knowledge. It's causal knowledge, as I can say. Now, we have to be rather very careful there, particularly... Uh, there have been so many mistaken attempts to understand Aquinas' five ways on the basis of the causes. And there's a tendency to uh, uh, just always talk about uh, the various causes. You see those two white books under yes. my breviary? No, don't, don't oh, get them. Okay. But uh, there's a third, the first volume, mm. which I read about, I'd say... 60 years ago, not 60 years ago, 45. In any case, it's a, a treatise on the church by Cardinal Journet, and he, his basic structure is uh, always the four causes. Mm. And it was part of the mentality, particularly in his days when he was a student, that what really characterized Thomism was the causal understanding. Yeah. Between the time that he would have studied and uh, I studied, so I would have been doing that in 47, 48, beginning that in 47, 48, uh, the big emphasis had become uh, analogy. Mm. And then even during that time when I was studying, uh, with all of that emphasis on analogy, it started shifting to um, the, as they put it generally, the concept of being. Mother Gilson did so much uh, work on that to show that it wasn't a concept. <laughs> uh, it was related to the judgment of, as he and others put it, existence. <clears throat> and that's what made a great amount of foundation of both Gilson and Marité's uh, uh, reputation. But you see, there are always these shifts in emphasis. And uh, so to say that it's causal knowledge, yes, it's causal knowledge, but it has to be this causal knowledge of God and the blessed sharing their knowledge with us and that knowledge in us, bringing us to their beatitude. Now you see the difference between just saying causal knowledge and leaving it at that, which uh, some people have done, and um, having that causal understanding within the beatifying uh, knowledge of uh, God himself. Uh, I, I think it puts, uh, you see, given what we call theology nowadays, uh-huh. then we can't call what Aquinas is doing theology. Or, given what Aquinas would call very, very infrequently called theology, 
What people are doing now is scarcely theology. It's little tail ends of side pieces. If you'd say Aquinas' sacred doctrine is uh, beatitudinal, another English word. Though it's amazing what you can find in the Oxford English Dictionary. They would say, oh, no, that only belongs to the moral parts. And you see that they're breaking everything down into parts. Which reminds me of something, speaking of the OECD. During the um, mid-Victorian period, that is, uh, the 18, maybe 40s, 50s, 60s, and then, the uh, Oxford Divines, <clears throat> which in uh, some ways is better, well, I'll leave that aside. The Oxford Divines developed a word, of, uh, and it was theodidact. Mm. A theodidact. And it was something of a pejorative term. That is, uh, didact, someone who was uh, learned about God. And they contrasted the, those people who were theodidacts with theologians, as they were closer to the Greek than we are now. The theodidacts were people who were learned about theology. That is, they could talk a line and call it theology, but that they weren't learned about God. Now, you see, the theology is... The the, uh, the it's two the two Greek words uh, the uh, log uh, logos theou the word concerning God what I said before the sermo de deo <clears throat> now in the Greek usage and I think that's still a great part of uh, Aquinas' understanding. There was always the theology which would be concerned about the uh, the life of the blessed persons amongst themselves. So there's another aspect to this intensely personal knowledge. What the three persons know and recognize about each other. And of course then how this person in this saint and that person in that saint and how all of those uh, differed weren't diverse but differed. Now this uh, science uh, as uh, Aquinas puts it in the body of the article there are two important parts. There is the um, light of natural, the natural light of the intellect. And then there is the light of the superior science, the science of God and the blessings. Yeah. So that aspect of light and science, we have to talk a little bit about that. And then the light makes known the principles. So that scientia, 
and the uh, principles made known by this light or that light. Mm -hmm. And then also, particularly as we'll see in uh, later articles, how these lights can uh, interpenetrate each other and how one light can raise a lower light to its level. And that's not too many, that's not spoken of very much, particularly light. The, uh, most of the discussions will just focus on principles because we can easily understand that in terms of Descartes' clear and distinct ideas or uh, Kant's categories or yeah. uh, uh, various principles in Leibniz or Hegel or whatnot. But um, there is that uh, deep, deep uh, bond between light and principle in the constitution of a science. So what would be the light of the superior science, which is the science of God and the blessed? Well, if we, we can just take something up out of St. John, God is light. So the light of the superior science that is called sacred doctrine is God's light, which he is. So when he communicates this light through the principle to constitute the science of the blessed, isn't he just communicating himself? Mm -hmm. And uh, so I think that encompassing understanding uh, frees us from the trap of just reducing Aquinas' language down to language that is philosophically acceptable and generally known, yeah. but it leaves everything else that he considers important. Well, if, when you want to write something down, why don't you tell me you want to write or not? I can give you time. Oh, no, no, it's, no, it's, it's okay. It's okay. okay. But you were thinking something out. Um, you were going to... Yes, yes. Um, the principle which the the higher light um, illuminates for us. Uh -huh. Those principles are well, um, are they the same thing as what we call a, a truth of the faith? Yes. Aquinas' okay. uh, technical term will be articles of faith. Of faith. Okay. And these are basically related to uh, the 12 or 14 articles of the creed. He has articles okay. Okay. on that. Some people say 12 because of the 12 apostles. Yeah. There is the story that the 12 apostles got together and each one of them contributed an article. An article. But then Aquinas goes into another uh, explanation for 14. Mm -hmm. It depends on how you divide a text. <clears throat> now, if we go back to uh, the um, I'm invited to graduation at Stanford. Uh -huh. 
I'm a golf course oh. out there. It, uh, I was going to say little girl, but I don't know what that was. She was born. Yeah. I was a big, beautiful college graduate. Uh, um, you see, if we take the principle uh, that the whole is necessarily, and that includes always, greater than the part, what makes known that principle to us? Now, you see, uh, we went through the example that uh, this piece of paper that I'm holding. Reason makes known that principle. What makes known to reason? The, the um, things. The being itself. Mm-hmm. So since the being, the piece of paper, impresses itself into our understanding and actuates our understanding into understanding that the whole is always greater than the part. It's also uh, transmitting from its mode of being into our mind intelligible aspects concerning itself that is whole and part and their interrelation and their necessity. <clears throat> so the, um, the Aquinas doesn't sort of go into this in this context, but he certainly does in the commentary on the um, divine words mm-hmm. of uh, Dennis. There he says that um, every being is a light. He doesn't say that here, um, but I think it uh, is something that illuminates what he's doing here in the Summa. So we'd have to say then that, uh, as he says in the Summa, <clears throat> what um, makes for the, um, the closest aspect of similitude or image to God in us Mm. is uh, that uh, we both have essay. That uh, since, another way of putting it, since God is pure act, uh, we being in act most resemble him as being in act. And I think that this is what he sort of understands underneath everything. But he hasn't brought it out explicitly. I think he went through stages of deepening, mm-hmm. heightening what he was discovering. <clears throat> but now, you see here, we've got a primary example with the paper. Mm-hmm. Its wholeness and its parts and its necessity. That um, this is made known by the light of natural reason. Um, Just to sort of go over it again, I could hold a piece of paper up to someone and I could say, um, um, the whole is always greater than the part. And I would have told that person 
But what really make, makes them see the principle as principle? My act of education is directing their attention to the being, but it's really the actually existing being, the paper being, that uh, is uh, explicitating itself within the judgmental principle of the mind. So to say that the whole uh, is always greater than the part is uh, really a different modality of being for the paper. It's uh, the paper being in the knowing mind. It's the paper being in the knowing mind as of that expressed principle. So really, uh, no difference really between the two, mm -hmm. except a modality, one in, be, in itself being itself, and uh, the other itself as present to a knowing mind. But uh, the, the intelligibility is one and the same being. And uh, I've found uh, over the decades that uh, to insist on that, certainly for myself, was my best way of learning Aquinas. Mm. Though when I was, uh, well, I guess I was, you're what, 19? 20. 20. I was... 18 or 19, and uh, a, a professor had come back from uh, Louvain. I may have told you this. And uh, he was, he came back already a famous uh, professor in the faculty uh, as the metaphysician. Mm -hmm. And he was, oh, it was, I must have been a bit older, 2021. It was a graduate course. And in any case, he was talking about the De Antiodescentia of Aquinas, and I was looking, I had my own text, and I was looking through it, and I'd go from my text, and I'd look at him, and I'd go back to the text, and I'd look back at him, and I said to myself, whatever he's saying, the professor, which I don't follow, mm -hmm. I know that it's not what they text is saying, but I don't really know what the text is saying, <laughs> but there was this utter conviction that what he was saying, what the text was saying, were, had nothing to do with each other, or you know, very little to do with each other, yeah. the same words. And um, I decided to, uh, I decided two things, I did write a a thesis on that. And then um, the other thing I decided, and this was the most important one, I decided that I would read what people were calling Thomas. I would read him as an anonymous author mm -hmm. about which nothing was known. I've kept that up all my life. <laughs> You're right. Uh, 
58 years, 59 years later, still doing the same thing. Uh, and I think it was one of the most profitable things in my studies. <clears throat> and it was interesting that the thesis subject that I originally chose for the doctorate was on analogy, because it was the big, big thing. And uh, I got uh, six months into it, and I realized, no, that isn't my subject. Being is my subject. Mm -hmm. uh, I had, but I'd already shifted from the De Ante Descensia to the commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences. <clears throat> so the, another moral you can draw out of all of that is don't trust your professors. <laughs> I was fortunate. I had maybe three three professors that were just extraordinary. Um, now, the interrelation of sciences and um, the... Uh, no. Oh, maybe we need to look at light more. We've got, we've got an example with the paper being about the natural light of reason. That is, when the paper, so to, so to speak, enters into our mind, we can uh, read and hear what it's saying. Um, and so that, that would be the light that we're able to see. Now the, you know that the um, Plato in the Republic, that uh, down dark in the cave, and one is able to escape the chains, chains and start crawling out. Yes, and uh, comes out into outside the cave, uh, into the sunlight, which is called the light of being actually sees it first reflected on the water, and then looking up, sees the sun, which is the light of being. <clears throat> and if we ask ourselves, what does the sunlight, the ordinary daily sunlight, do for us? Doesn't it make beings appear in their differences to each other? So in some ways, it's making the beings stand out, uh, manifesting the, their own way of being. In effect, saying, I'm this, that's that. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, Augustine has something of the same thing. Uh, as you might find in Plato, but it's even better. He wonder what he, what is it that he loves when he loves God, and uh, he says uh, it's a kind of uh, 
goes through the five senses, uh, a kind of uh, embrace, uh, smell, uh, vision, everything of that sort. Yes. And then um, he asks the question, are you God? So he would be asking yes. of, uh, let's say, the pencil, or you or I, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Are you God? And their answer is no. He made us. And uh, the, uh, so that is uh, a very, very important aspect of what is referred to as Augustine's uh, Illuminism or Illumination. Now you see, it isn't just some sort of light God coming into his mind and illuminating him on the occasion of knowing this or knowing that or something like that. That's all too Cartesian. Mm. Uh, um, it's said uh, that uh, things in some ways illuminate, illuminate the mind, the human mind, mm-hmm. um, as to uh, knowledge of God. I think people have done Augustine a grave disservice in many ways. I once made uh, a number of feminists up at the GTU rather angry mm-hmm. with me, but I did it uh, somewhat well deliberately to put them in their place. Yeah. They were going on about how St. Paul and Augustine, who was a follower of St. Paul, mm-hmm. uh, hated the world. And uh, of course, what they were meaning was they had the rather demanding uh, sexual behavior. Yes. Uh, in mind. And, uh, well, that couldn't be. That was hating the world. And then, so I went into the city of God and I found any number of passages that are just going, that are ecstatically uh, crazy yeah. about the world and its beauty. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I thought uh, if these women were some men too, would read these, they wouldn't be able to identify them. Yeah. And uh, secondly, they would probably think they were written by some, uh, you know, uh, rabid romantic of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I gave them to read it. Oh, they thought they were beautiful and marvelous. And I finally said, ah, but, uh, this is Augustine. And well, uh, they certainly showed their disapproval of the trick that I played on them. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, it didn't change their mind about anything. Very, very strange. <laughs> That's why I say, don't trust professors. This has been a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated, all rights reserved, copyright 2020. For more, visit Magnus Institute. Dot org. See you next time.